Well, hello everyone. This is Ezra, and welcome back to the Ezra Lip Hour, more or less. Usually, these intros, not a problem for me. I can kind of just ad lib, and it all turns out okay. However, for some reason this evening, I've tried recording the first 10 seconds of this particular intro a half a dozen times, and I just, uh, I think I'm, I'm just a little underslept, but I really want to get this done because <laughs> I don't want to linger anymore and further delay this episode, which I'm excited about. So I'm going to power on and, you know, oh, I forgot to set a timer. Okay. I'm going to quickly set a timer so I won't, I'm, I'm only going to do it for two more minutes because I've already talked for about a minute and I'm trying to keep these under three minutes. Okay. So we're on the clock now. And, uh, anyway, if I'm not my usual peppy self, now you know why, but a monster of a guest today. We got Stanton Moore, Nita Seymour, New Orleans jazz, New Orleans jazz R&B funk drummer. You probably know him from Galactic, who's been touring their asses off for the last 20 plus years. You might also know him from Garage A Trois with Skerrick and Mike Dillon and Marco Benevento, from Dragon Smoke, from his collaborations with Robert Walter and Will Bernard and just about every amazing, legendary New Orleans musician out there. He's he's quite a monster of a drummer, but Stanton is is really, uh, he's so much more than that because he, he's an educator. He has the online Stanton Moore Online Drum Academy, which is an extraordinary resource for really drummers of all levels. I've, I've checked it out myself and been quite impressed with the content there. Uh, so check that out. He uh, has, has his hand in, in different cymbal lines through Bosphorus and Crescent Cymbals that he's developed. He's been on the cover of just about every drum magazine there is and written articles and lessons for that and does clinics. And he, he's really, he's quite an impressive figure, kind of someone that, uh, I mean... Yeah, he kind of puts he kind of puts the rest of us to shame in, in a way. I'm not 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 so much, but let's just say Stanton is clearly very motivated. We discussed some of that in this conversation, which we recorded this past January uh, on Jam Cruise, somewhere in the tropics. You can hear the uh, air conditioner and uh, the the faint hum of the boat that's the timer I've, I've already i'm i'm out of time but you know what i'm i'm in the flow now i'm just gonna i'm just gonna keep going so anyway we recorded this in january in jam cruise stanton was gracious enough to sit down with me and invite me into his room and and uh we had this conversation and we go through some of his background and lots of different stuff i will admit this episode you know features two drummers it kind of gets a little into some geeky drum stuff at different points. We don't we don't stay there the whole time, but as you know, these conversations I try to make accessible to all instrumentalists. I'm well, all musicians and non-musicians and 
certainly for musicians, any, any, whatever you play, it's, should be able to enjoy these episodes. But this one, you know, we get into some drum stuff, but we, we talk about lots of other stuff too. So anyway, uh, I think you'll enjoy this conversation. I certainly did. Stan, thank you so much for having, uh, 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 giving me this opportunity to uh, get to know you a little bit. I really enjoyed it. And without further ado, please welcome the one and only Stanton Moore. So I thought I thought maybe a good place to start uh, would be talking about about focus because you know we're on Jam Cruise and and I come in your room and uh, you know you played you played last night you were up late you were sitting in and now you're you're already practicing at your pad and there's so many I feel like we're all kind of uh, bombarded with with so many distractions today like that are beyond our choice and. You know, we have digital distractions. We're on Jam Cruise now. There's a million things to do. You have friends on the boat. You have there's music going on. Uh, how do you find that focus to make time to to still do what's important to you? Yeah, I find that it's beneficial to try to have a semi regular schedule. And I love practicing in the morning, having coffee and practicing. And so the schedule I've been able to get into lately when I'm home is, you know, wake up, make coffee for me and my wife, take my daughter to school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I, on the mornings when I have to take her to school, I come back and my wife is getting ready for work. So we have about 20, 30 minutes where we hang and catch up and talk about stuff. Then I get her out the door off to work and then I sit down at the drums, yeah. you know? And like literally, I have drums in the front room of the house so I literally close the door and then sit down at the drums don't open the computer don't look at the phone like I'm saying for me right, that, sure. that's what I try yeah. to do because those distractions will creep in you know so I try to sit down and maybe shed for an hour and a half um, between 8.30 and 10 mm-hmm. you know and some days if I'm working on extra stuff like you know maybe I'll go to 11 you know and then I also try to write you know, during that time. So really try not to... lessons or what? Yeah, writing lessons, written lessons, or working on the notation or the worksheet for one of the video lessons. Mm -hmm. So I'm always writing stuff for for the academy, and I love doing it. So so it's an ongoing project for me. You know, I wrote two books, and I loved that process. So now instead of putting them out as, as books, I'm putting them out as written lessons on the site. Yeah. So I try to do all that stuff before I really open the computer and start answering email. Because mm-hmm. if I start opening the computer and answering email and then you take a phone call and then before you know it, it's noon. And mm-hmm. then, oh, I'm hungry. So you you know you eat and then, and then you get another phone call and then you deal with that. And oops, I'm you know, behind on all these emails. And, yeah. and then the day has like, yeah, gotten away gone. from you. And so I find that you just have to kind of you know, let me say this in quotes, but quote, steal time for yourself. Mm-hmm. And it used to be when when I was living downtown, I had the V drums set up. I was living in a condo uh, about four years ago. And, and I would, you know, if I was jet lagged or I'd wake up and not be able to sleep, I would just shed, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, 
that was my routine like back then you know but now being married and and having a daughter and all of those responsibilities I you got to figure out a time where you can regularly do it you know yeah. so when I'm on the road I wake up I'm usually one of the first ones up make coffee and I try to shit yeah. you know and then I also bring in a practice kit I've got like a little mini kit right now I've got the the Gretz just made a Brooklyn series micro kit and they sent it to me so it's a 10 13 16 inch bass drum and I keep that under the bus and I've been keeping a kit under the bus but it's an years. acoustic kit mm-hmm. nice yeah okay. so I'll set that up you know if I have time under the bus no 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 backstage but oh, okay. on this last tour we were doing a lot of a lot of outdoor venues with Trumman Shorty and Preservation Hall and so there were a lot of musicians on the tour and so the backstage area was always, you know, always had people back yeah, there. So right. I was trying not to make too much noise back there. So I started setting up in the trailer. Mm. And the trailer's made out of wood. So it was literally like a shed on wheels, mm-hmm. you know. So I have a little rug and I just set up. The gear trailer. Yeah. Just Okay, so and you're like, it's black, it's dark in there. Or well, probably they, they keep it open all day. So once okay. the gear is yeah, out, once, once the they load it yeah. in. So I'll shit on the pad in the morning and then once the gear is out, I'll go set up in the trailer. Wow. You know, because these outdoor venues during the summer, the trailer's just open and we're back there mm-hmm. behind the venue and we leave it open all day and then I can just go in there and shit. There's yeah. plenty of sunlight coming in. Yeah. You know, so it's great. Let's get hot in there. Uh, it's not that bad, yeah, believe good. it or not. Okay. Uh, and I think one or two days I ran an extension cord and ran a fan. Okay. But, but it wasn't too, too bad. And then... I mean, keep in mind, too, I'm from New Orleans, right? right? So, you know, Portland in August, not so bad, you know. Mm-hmm. New Orleans in August, <laughs> pretty pretty brutal. But but um, so we were touring East Coast, West Coast, and, and it wasn't so bad. So I, I just love shedding, and I, I can really tell when I'm, when I'm playing a gig if I'm on top of my game or not, you know. Mm-hmm. And before we started rolling... Uh, before we started recording, you would ask me what I've been working on, and I showed you. And you know, over the holidays, I was not on my schedule, and and I could feel it. You know, like playing gigs and stuff. So I was like, all right, I'm gonna take some time on jam cruise and really try to get the cobwebs out and get back to shedding on a regular basis, and you know, not go to the shore and just mm-hmm. stay on the boat and work and shed and yeah. and all that. So just what I was showing you, I was working on doing it just uh in the last two days i mean it was pretty rusty like i had to i had to you know work it out and smooth it out and and now i feel like i'm back to a decent level not the greatest i've ever been at that particular thing i showed you i was working on but it's you know at a workable level i was feeling you know pretty pretty rusty so i i really like shedding because it keeps me feeling like i'm on top of my game yeah and i'm i'm luckily coming up with new ideas often and it might be an idea that somebody you know I might try to play something along with something that somebody played in their solo and I might go for something it makes me think of something and maybe I make it and maybe not quite but 
if I make it, I shed it to make sure that I make it every time. Mm-hmm. And if I did not quite make it, then I shed it to make sure I can make it. Sure. So when I'm at the kit, my practice is different than when I'm at the pad. You know, when I'm at the kit, I try to work on full kit stuff. That is, you know, ideas that I'm trying to work into my playing. And then with the pad, like what I've got right here, I'm just trying to work out cobwebs and you know work on. Uh, smoothing things out and work on motions and and you know just try to refine some of that stuff and then on the drums I'm usually playing more musical ideas did you uh, would you say you from a while ago had this work ethic is this something you developed over years or kind of from the get-go yeah I mean I think I developed it you know over the over the years but I've had it for a long time I think I really wanted to be good at drumming and music and and for some reason I'm I'm very competitive. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like I grew up playing sports, baseball, soccer, swimming, diving, a uh, little bit of basketball and then got into skateboarding. Um, but I was never super great at anything athletic, but yet I had this drive to be really good or even the best, but I was never, you know, the best or even really good at any at any at any of the yeah. athletic stuff. And then with skateboarding, I really loved it. But then I broke my left leg in between eighth and ninth grade, and then broke my right leg in between ninth and tenth grade. Oh jeez. Yeah. So I was like, mm, maybe I should focus on this drumming thing. But then around that time, eighth grade, ninth grade. Um, it was when I started to realize how much work it was going to take to become good. But I really wanted to because I have that competitive nature. And I was like, well, in drumming, you know, there's no win or lose. And you also run less risk of breaking your leg. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, it's a lot safer. So I was like, oh, maybe I'll do this drumming thing that I already am in love with but maybe I'll apply all my focus and energy to that what what how old were you when you kind of made that decision so that was you know eighth ninth grade I think it was really kind of ninth grade I think is when it really started to kick in because in eighth grade you had to do beginner band which was like 15 kids around two formica tables and Marty Hurley taught us all and he would, you know, just start it off. We spent like two weeks on Ooh. grip. Wait, what do you mean for Mike? Like, like a table, like a, you know, like a cafeteria table. You, and you had sticks. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, wow. and we were playing on the table, and it was wow. loud. Okay. You know, um, now he does it with pads. Oh well, he did it. He passed away in 2011. Mm-hmm. But, but we would all stand around this table, and he was in the middle, and then we spent two weeks just on grip. You know. But then, and he would tell us, he's like, look, you know, I understand. You don't want to, you know, focus on grip right now. He's like, but until you can do this, and he would play like bust out a double stroke roll. He's like, I'm going to show you how to do it. You're just going to have to put in the work and listen to me. But you can't do this. So shut up and do what I'm telling you. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So, um... So he was amazing in that way, and and going from eighth grade to ninth grade, I 
almost made it on tritons, but long story, they tried to move one of the seniors up to snare drum and add a snare drum. They had been a six snare drum line for a while. They tried to add a seventh snare drum, and he wasn't quite cutting it, so they moved him back to the tritoms, but they only had three sets of tritoms. So I got stuck with a set of tritoms that didn't have a carrier. So, yeah, so I got to play in the stands. For those who might not know what a tritom is, will you describe this instrument? Yeah, it's like, um, you know, in the middle there's one drum and there's a drum on either side of that. And they're pitched differently. And and they're around your body. Yeah, 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 and they're very heavy. Yeah, Yeah, and you're, nowadays people play with quads or even quints, and now people even play with six, I think. But uh, at the time it was three. And in the middle it's like, (laughs) you know, one tone and then... Uh, tones on the side, so right. So that was one of the parts to one of the cadences, and you know, so that was cool because it helped me learn how to get around drums, and and that was pretty cool. And then, but what happened was because I, you know, I got uh, bumped off of the the tritons that had a carrier, so. I'm playing tritons without a carrier, and I got to play in the stands, but on the football field, I didn't go out on the football field, I had to sit in the stands, and then when the Mardi Gras came around, I had to carry the banner, and not even in a band uniform, because I had a band uniform, but the other kid who was going to carry the banner didn't have a band uniform, so they had to wear, um, we had to wear our school uniform to carry the banner in marching parades and I'm seeing like other kids my age that I know on the parade route I'm like this sucks I'm like dude like not only you know did I take the leap to be a band nerd like I was I was fine with that because I knew I was going to become good at drumming through that right but then to be not only a band nerd but in my school uniform at night on the parade route carrying the banner yeah I was like, F this, you know? I was like, if it's going to take hard work, I want to be the, the drum captain. I want to win All-State, all that kind of stuff. So then I started talking to Marty Hurley about taking private lessons with him, and I started really working yeah. my butt off. And yeah. then um, sophomore year, I did play tri-toms. Junior year, I moved up to snare, because I think I really started taking private lessons with him in sophomore year junior year moved up to snare and then by senior year I was the drum captain nice and I won all state on drum set junior year I won all state on timpani um so just to be clear you had you had set that intention like that basically that time you were like I want to do this I want to be captain I want to win all state yeah one million percent when you were carrying the banner yeah and I, I don't mean it to sound like I'm bragging on what I did in high school that's not what I'm saying what I'm saying is like I set myself goals yeah and I was like if it's gonna take a lot of work then I'm gonna have to work towards these goals and I I did that and I think that's how I developed my work ethic mm-hmm. was at that age being like man F this I'm I don't ever want to go through this humiliation again right. so I want to be the best I can be at this and I started Setting goals and then just working really hard towards those. Can you think of um, 
that's that's great. Can you can you think of other other goals that you've set since then that you have come to fruition? Sure. Um, you know, being on the cover of Modern Drummer, yeah, <laughs> and Drum Magazine, and like all these other international magazines. You know, play Modern Drummer Festival, things like that. Did, um, so when you when you talk like were these things that you just kind of said to yourself, or did you write them down, or did you speak them to? Friends and family, like how do you? I would definitely would speak them to friends and family. Yeah, and I don't think I've necessarily wrote them down, but would say it over and over in my head. Mm-hmm. You know, definitely mm-hmm. visualization. Mm-hmm. Um, and nowadays, I might even say stuff out loud just to put it out yeah. there. Yeah, you know. And you know, really, like I think I was fourteen, fourteen or fifteen years old, and the drum shop in New Orleans called Ray Francis Drum Center. And the, the general manager who runs the place, like he does everything, he's, is Frank, Frank the Archangelo. And every drummer in New Orleans loves Frank because he's been helping everybody out, fixing their stuff, giving them good advice, and he's just a really cool guy. And I just love him to death. And when I was 14 or 15 years old, he told me, and he's like, you watch what I'm telling you. He's like, you're going to be on the cover of Modern Drummer. I said, what? And he was like, oh yeah. He's like, I see everybody who comes into this shop mm. and nobody's working as hard as you. So because he said that to me, yeah. then I believed it and I started saying it to myself. And and then it totally became a reality. Yeah, that's and that's great that it didn't have, or maybe it didn't have any adverse effects. Like, you know, get right. into your head and be like, oh, I don't have to do this. I'm going to be famous one day, you know? Right. No, no, no. I just realized I was going to have to work my ass off yeah. to get to that point. Do you think you had more talent than a lot of your peers at that point? Or was it just... No. No, yeah. there were definitely more talented drummers, for sure. Yeah. And then I think some of them just lost interest or... You know, eventually became professional drummers, and then, you know, just lost interest in working as hard. Mm-hmm. I guess mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, that's but the thing, um, that's the thing that happens for for people who aren't musicians. Like, you know, people succeed at a certain level and then can ride on their accolades, or you know, be be okay at a, at a certain level. And yeah, I mean, and two, you know, it was good. Is good. When I was coming up, I had guys who were just ahead of me or just behind me but I mean age wise that really pushed me you know um so when I was in high school I saw Brian Blade play for the first time and he was going to Loyola University and I wanted to go to Loyola so I could study with Johnny Vodakovich and Mm -hmm. I wanted to stay in New Orleans for college because I wanted to be a New Orleans drummer so I I would see Brian and, you know, I mean, talk about, you know, talented musicians and drummers. And so he was just, um, you know, a force of nature. And he, I mean, he still is. But when I saw him at that time, you know, he was incredibly inspiring to me mm-hmm. for me to, you know, push to be better. But also I realized I couldn't do what he was doing, you know. Um, in, in what sense? Just in... in multiple senses in way that I well for one thing I can't play like him yeah you know nobody can yeah. I mean um, he has a very unique voice and you know people have definitely tried to copy him and you can hear it it's like mm-hmm. 
well, that's nice. That's a nice Brian Blade copy. But, you know, what, what do you sound like? Right. You know? Yeah. Um, and so I didn't want to sound like that. You know? I didn't want to sound like I was trying to cop him. <clears throat> Although, you know, I've been accused at times of, of copying Johnny Vodakovich or Zigaboo Modalist or Herlin Riley or John Bonham. But I try to throw it all into the pot yeah. and, and let it come out in a way that is uniquely me. And, you know, especially when I was developing, you know, you start off by just kind of, you know, copying certain things and you don't quite have your own voice on it yet. So, you know, definitely guys would be, you know, they say, oh, man, he's just, he just sounds like a Johnny Vodakovich clone. And then other people say, oh, he just sounds like a Zygmunt Modelis clone. It's like, well, those guys sound vastly different. So which one Yeah, is right, it? right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but... You know, for a certain, if you walked in on one song and I was trying to cop a Johnny Vodakovich thing on that song, uh, maybe so. And now I've tried to, you know, make it more of my own thing, you know, and... How do you do that? How do you do that? By continuing to cop other things and then learning how to mix them, mm -hmm. you know? So maybe something as simple as, you know, checking out Elvin and maybe using some... Elvin-inspired fills when you're playing a Johnny Vodakovich beat, right? Or sometimes I'm playing a Johnny Vodakovich type of snare drum thing, and I might play fills that sound like Zigaboo Modalist on the hi-hat and, you know, stuff like that. So, also, you know, incorporating the Pondero and the, and the, the Cowbell and just using, using tones and textures that your other drummers don't use, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I could play something that Johnny played and play it between the Pondero and Cowbell and it'll sound different, even right. though it's basically the same sticking. So, just, you know, jump-starting the process that way. And the more that you do that, the more adept you get at being creative in blurring those lines. And the more adept you get at developing your own voice you know yeah and not so much just copying somebody else and there are definite things that i play that's like yeah i can hear you got that from from there but i try to take things and then improvise with them vary them and then make note of what that is that i came up with and then that's the thing that i use so you know i've worked out Elvin Jones uh, transcriptions and Philly Joe transcriptions and Max Roach and all you know all these kinds of things, but um, I don't want to take and play any of that. Play an excerpt from an Elvin Jones solo while I'm playing. So what I'll do is I'll take one thing from an Elvin solo that I really like, yeah. and then I'll improvise with it, and then I'll figure out how to do it in funk, how to do it in second line. He did it in jazz, so of course I'll work on it in jazz, and then figure out how to how to place it in all those different places. And even you know heavy metal. I mean, I made a record with corrosion and conformity, and a lot of it was kind of shuffle based, you know, groove based, shuffle based, uh, heavy music. So people, you know, flipped out on some of the tom fills I was doing and stuff, but it was basically just taking an Elvin Jones idea mm. and different jazz ideas and playing them on big drums with a lot of power 
and then people weren't used to hearing that they're like whoa that's really cool but that's where it's coming from you know is checking out elven philly and rudimental stuff and then learning how to do it in multiple contexts and once you learn how to do it in funk or anything with a backbeat well then you can put it into a heavy context as well you know yeah and so that's what i try to do is i try to create my own vocabulary based off of things that i like from other people and it's a process you have to take that one idea that one cell and learn it from you know someone and then improvise with it until it becomes something that is different and then it's uniquely yours and something that's second nature to you yes so it, yeah. yeah and that's that's a good point is that sometimes I'll check something out that maybe Elvin did and I'm like mm, that doesn't feel so second nature like for example you know John Bonham does his triplets he does his triplets left right foot mm-hmm. left right foot where the left is the downbeat well, I've been doing them right left foot for years and years and years. And then by the time that I learned that he's doing left right foot, now I have to shed that. So I've been shedding that. And of course, when you do it, it sounds a hell of a lot more like John Bonham, um, especially when he's doing like the quarter note triplet. Uh, you know, lo la lo lo la lo lo la and he does the crossovers. You know, that's that's really, really cool. And I've been shedding that, but that's not second nature to me. Okay. It's second yeah. nature for me to lead with the right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm shedding that, but I'm not going to bust that out on a gig anytime soon. Right, yeah. You know? So to, to play an idea like that, I would have to go back to my way of doing it. And, and finding what's second nature for you is totally okay. And, you know, this is a thing that we can talk about. I mean, I, I love you know, being a student of the instrument. But for years, like, especially trying to learn brushes and stuff, it confounded me because I would see all these great brush players and they were playing with their left hand counterclockwise, right? So for your listeners who may not be aware of uh, brush strokes, think of, um, you know, you're harvesting. uh, You're harvesting, you're bringing in, right? So you're like grabbing stuff and bring it in into your chest. That's that's a stroke that most people feel comfortable, where your left hand would be doing a clockwise circular motion, right? And then both hands are moving, and you're kind of harvesting, bringing in something to your chest. Now, some great brush players like Elvin Jones, Brian Blade, Steve Gadd, and Peter Erskine, they all play counterclockwise to where both hands are doing more of a breaststroke motion okay where both hands are moving counterclockwise now i would check that out and especially like with blade you know as he was two years older than me and well, what aren't both hands moving different this one's going clockwise and your left and the right's going correct counter. correct right. but so, so it's yeah. a, about the, the left hand is doing all the swishing all the time. And the left hand is going kind right? of right. So yeah. For, but so when you're moving both of them, they're they're going in. One, the left hand's going clockwise, and then the the right hand's going counterclockwise. Yeah. But it's into your body. Into your body, right? right? Yeah. So and then I would watch guys like like Blade, and he was moving his left hand right. out. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I'm like, man, 
how do you have the time to shed and get comfortable coming in and then also learn how to go out? Well, I didn't know this at the time, but I've learned this, especially talking with Ed Soph, that he really believes, and I agree with him, and this is a a realization I came to, and, and he just, you know, kind of galvanized this belief that you, you know, cats are wired to they feel more comfortable, more second nature coming into their body or going out. Oh. And now if you talk to, to drummers who play this way, going out like this, most of them that I've talked to, they're like, oh yeah, no, I, I feel really uncomfortable coming oh, interesting. in. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, really huh. interesting. So you might be checking out, you know, Elvin or Blade or, you know, Steve Gadd. And there's definitely stuff I've taken from Steve Gadd and his brush playing where you know he does a crescent in the right hand and he does counter circles in his left on the E's and the A's. And I said that and it was not second nature to mm-hmm. me. So I had to keep the crescent in the right hand but then do back and forth or small football shaped, you know, circles or uh, you know, what are those ellipses? Or what do you <laughs> what ovals, you know, okay. small ovals yeah. that that I'm making with my left hand, and that felt natural to me. Yeah. That felt second nature. Yeah. And so, too, what I've had to learn is don't beat yourself up too much if something's not second nature to mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. Figure out how to do that or achieve that same effect, but in a way that is second nature right. to Cause, you. Because at the end of the day, as long as that sounds comfortable, it doesn't really matter if you're going clockwise. Right, or right. And then some drummers will tell you, you know, oh, you absolutely cannot play brushes matched grip. That's just that's just unbelievably ridiculous. Well, tell that to Bill Stewart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, or you can't play jazz playing matched grip. Right. Tell that to Bill, man. You know, mm-hmm. Bill's one of my favorite drummers. Mm-hmm, me too. And and in some ways, I'm envious of Bill because. You know, think about what we do to ourselves as drummers, you know, when we learn traditional grip. So your left hand is supposedly your weaker hand, right? Yet, we have to learn traditional with it. Then you got to spend all this time learning how to do all that stuff with match grip, too. It's like your poor left hand doesn't stand a chance. Mm -hmm. But then Bill, you know, I'm envious of Bill. Bill is like, here's my grip. You know, that's it. Yeah. You know, I'm like, man, that's economy. Really, Mm -hmm. you know, that's economical. Imagine all the time, all the shedding time that he's been able to save on learning two different grips. uh, And he's applied that to his touch and musicality. Yeah, yeah. On the drums. So why do people learn? I mean, I I actually never learned traditional grip. I only play match grip. Like, why, why spend time on that? So... That's a good question, and, and and let's just have give a short explanation. Uh, tr- match grip is is kind of what you see a lot of drummers do, where their uh, their palm is down and they're holding the stick or slightly tilted. And the traditional grip you might see, particularly in jazz styles, in the left hand, and their palm is up and their the stick's kind of between your index finger and your thumb, and it's uh, kind of have a more turning motion with your 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 palm face up turning towards your body yeah yeah the left hand is more like your in traditional grip more like you're turning a doorknob mm-hmm. 
And in the right hand, you're holding the stick almost like you're holding a knife. Right. You know? Yeah. And you're kind of holding the stick that way. Um, so, drummers are taught this way because it's it's a, the way that drummers played for a long time because the snare drum was tilted. It was on a strap, and it was tilted. And so to march, it had to be tilted, and and to get your left elbow up high enough to you know play on that slant was really a challenge. So they would just hold it the other way. Yeah. And then a lot of jazz. So that's the historical background. But what's like the like? Why is it? Is it just because it's tradition? Like, is there really? I think a lot of guys are still taught that way. And then for me, it's a vibe thing. Okay. It's a choice thing. If I'm going to be playing jazz or brushes or, uh, you know, in the style of Ziggy Wimowaist or Clyde Stubblefield, Jabo Starks, or even Levon Helm in the early days, Levon played, played traditional. So all those drummers I just named played traditional, right? So because I spent so much time learning it, it it's an option for me. And it's an option that I'm glad that I have, you know. And Marty Hurley was very much, um, you know, it's my way or the highway. Mm -hmm. And he would tell us, look, right. just learn it this way, and then you can teach your left hand to do what your right hand is doing. But you, if you play it match grip, you're never going to get traditional grip. Mm -hmm. But you had to play traditional grip to play on his snare drum line. Right. Right. So, so I just did it without having any choice you know and then but you know for a lot of drummers nowadays especially like you know students especially students who might be a little older you know I say I tell them well it's a choice and it's a choice you're gonna have to make but how much practice time do you get yeah and then do you want to spend that practice time on learning traditional grip you know I learned it when I was younger before I had a you know any kind of opinion or say so in the matter sure, so sure. so you know it's a thing that you have to you have to decide and determine for yourself I mean you know money we can make more money you know but you can't make more time mm -hmm. and as you said we all we all have distractions in our lives and things that pull us away from spending time working on our craft that we love so much so are you you got to decide for yourself how important is it for you to learn traditional grip is it as important to take time away from other things you might practice or take time away from hanging with your wife and your kids and your family yeah. you know and maybe it is and if it yeah, is right. and you want to do that then that's great mm -hmm. you know and um, and I I spent all that time when I was younger, you know, but um and I still like you know to to this day. All that stuff I was showing you, I was working on. Now I got to go back and shed it, match grip too. Mm -hmm, right. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Jeez. So it's like and and my match grip left hand is not as good, facility wise, as my traditional grip. Mm -hmm. Because I spent years marching on the snare line, playing all those cadences and, you know, all that snare drum stuff, traditional grip. So now I like traditional grip for finesse. And, and if I'm doing something vibe-wise, you know, even though 
playing Levon stuff, which I'm having a rehearsal today to go do some last waltz tribute stuff. All that stuff, I would play that traditional because uh, it's it's more the vibe, you know. But if I'm gonna be hammering backbeats all night, I'm gonna switch to to match grip, you know. And then you know some of my favorite drummers play match grip, you know, John Bonham, Bill Stewart. So I think that it's you know I think that a lot of people make a lot about it. It's like man, yeah. just play the drums, right? You know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah. you know, does it sound or, good? And you know what what grip was so and so playing on this record? It's like who gives sure. a shit? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know That's what I'm saying? Sound like it's like exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, you know, it's the same thing as stick twirling. You know, I you know. I stopped spending time on stick twirling because it doesn't sound good on records. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there's nothing against that if that's what you want to do. But, right. but um, I mean, you know, it's it's how much time do you have? Yeah. There's only so much yeah. time. Yeah. Well, speaking, I mean, okay. So another thing that I think is is pretty unique about uh, you as a musician and just also just as like a very accomplished person is you you know you have a whole music career you have a whole career with with different bands and i'd love to talk about galactic and some of the other projects but also and and you have a whole career with drumming and the drum world but then uh well well tied into that i mean it just you have like multiple you know you you're you're involved in in a long-standing band galactic you have so many other ongoing projects but you also like have your own line of symbols and you have your online drum academy and uh you, you've just bought a club with your band, you know, Tipitina's in, in New Orleans. So it's like, how do you, you know, this goes back to how to compartmentalize your time, but how do you, you know, how do you, how do you keep all those balls up in the air at such a high level? Too? Yeah, it's challenging. And, and really all these projects that you mentioned, I've had to focus on and put on the front burner to get them up and running. Mm. And they're, you know, each one of them... You know, it's years in the making, you know. The Drum Academy, I mean, I've been, I was writing and filming for it, you know, probably two, three years before it even went live, you know. And and so now it's like an everyday thing for me, you know. Mm -hmm. I was also writing um, before you came. I was working on a lesson on Shuffle Fills Part 2, right? So I already did like a eight-page lesson on shuffle fills because a lot of the guys in my academy are curious about shuffles and they have you know same kind of situation that I had which is you know shuffles are great but how do you make your shuffle sound better and what kind of fills do you play Mm -hmm. in a shuffle and so I and what happens god forbid if somebody turns around to you in a shuffle and says solo yeah So I really had to figure some stuff out, you know. So you, just today I was writing worksheets on that um, for my guys. So the the real thing and is, you know, you work on these projects and you get them up to speed and then you put the right people in the right places to help delegate, you know. So I have somebody helping me edit my academy lessons. I have somebody else helping me edit my gorilla lessons. You know, um, I have somebody now helping me with the notation on the the 
the academy lessons, and then he gets, sends me the notation. I have it put to the to the video, and then I and then I have to write out the worksheet, right? So I write out the worksheet, but having the notation helps a lot. Mm -hmm. So you know, you really kind of have to find the right people to help with the workload. Yeah, you know, so like with Tipitina's, you know, we have the same general manager and assistant manager in place. And general manager's been there for 15 years, you know? And we love him, and he's doing a great job. So we're going to keep him in place and let him do his job as mm -hmm. best as possible. But we're going to oversee it. So the thing is, you know, you put... To get something up and running, you got to put it on the front burner, and you're working on it. And then you get it to a point where you have the right people in place to delegate, and then you oversee this thing. Yeah. And you oversee it in email and conference calls and group texts and Slack channels and all this kind of stuff. But you got to... It has its own momentum. Yeah. So. And so for the symbols, you know, I was like going to Sabian, um, going to their factory and, you know, really working on that, going back and forth, trying out all the different prototypes. And that was on the front burner for a while, right? And now... We've got the production process in place, and every time I go to a drum shop and they have the cymbals, or I go to a show, I make sure I play all mm -hmm. the cymbals to mm -hmm. make sure that the quality control is still there, nice. and that they are, you know, making stuff the way that that we designed it yeah. to be made. Yeah. And or, so, uh, it's all about that getting the thing up, <clears throat> getting it up and running, which is a lot of work, and then doing what you need to do to oversee it, maintain it, and put the right people in place to, to delegate to, to, to keep it, you know, at maximum, performing at the maximum level you can. Mm -hmm. Do you, um, why, what keeps you doing all this stuff? Like, I mean, you could very easily just, just teach or just perform or just, you know, like why, why spread, you know, what, what drives you to have all these different endeavors? Yeah, well, I, that's a good question. I, it's because I love all of them and I find that I, each one of these things enhances my knowledge and my, my understanding and perception of my art form, you know, and my art form, sure, First and foremost, primarily is is playing the drums, right? Drums. Yeah. Okay, that's great. But then also, you know, I like to think that I'm pretty good at at also designing and and creating new sounds. You know, so my whole line of cymbals, the Pondero, um, you know, things that I, I do texturally within the drum set. You know. That's part of my art form too, and I wouldn't have learned about that if I hadn't designed my own signature symbols. You know, first with another company, and then and then started our own company, Crescent, and then Crescent was bought by Sabian. You know, and that whole process has has really helped me deepen my understanding of symbols and the symbol making process. And I've learned a lot by dealing with Jeff Hamilton and I've learned you know just so much from him he's a partner in that yeah okay he's a partner in Crescent and yeah. so going through that process I've 
you know, widened my understanding and knowledge of my art form, you know? And also, you could say, you know, I play shows, right? And now, Galactic bought Tepatinas, and Tepatinas puts on shows, right? Well, sure, we're in the business of putting on shows, we're in the business of selling drinks, but we're also in the business of creating experiences. Right, So, that's really what we're doing, and we're trying to create incredible experiences for the musicians and the patrons so that the musicians want to come back and they want to play again and when the musicians are having a good time and enjoying themselves and playing at the best possible level that they can then it's a better night for the patrons and the patrons are going to want to come back so you know all these things that I learn through doing all this stuff I can apply to what is now, you know, a new aspect of my art form, which is selling, selling experiences or providing incredible experiences. I mean, you could look at that as an art form, yeah. you know. And then teaching, I've been doing some seminars lately on learning through teaching. Like mm-hmm. I've learned mm-hmm. so much through mm-hmm. teaching, yeah. just by. First and foremost, you know, when I was in high school, starting to take private lessons and teach teach people, I would I would realize that wow, to teach somebody something, you it really deepens your understanding of that thing, right? So to just able, on, to be able to articulate it is, is huge. Yeah, 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 and you think you know it, but can you explain it? Right, yeah, and can you explain it to a, a room full of people and have them play it with you? in a matter of minutes, you know? That really crystallizes your understanding and, and, you know, knowledge of something. So, on that base level, that's when I first started learning that that I could really learn a lot by teaching. And then, as years go on, so people would ask me these questions, and, and so the more that I would describe this, the more crystallized my understanding and pres- presentation of this idea in the question, you know, like how did you develop your buzz rolls, right? And I first said, well, I did this, I did this, I did that, and then eventually I became, well, here are the five things that I developed, and if you work on these five things, you will develop your buzz rolls and take them to another level. And so, just organizing and kind of assembling my presentations, mm-hmm. you know, I've learned a lot through teaching about that. And then when guys in the forum, you know, at Drum Academy, when guys start posting variations of stuff that they've done that either I've done or somebody else has done, and then I start coming up with variations based off of that. So I start learning new grooves for me. Yeah, yeah. And then when these guys are like, man, I just read this amazing book about the learning process. You know, it's called The Talent Code. It's all about how your brain builds myelin when you're really focused on learning something that you don't know. Mm-hmm. And the failure of, of understanding that of what you're trying to learn, whether or not you realize that, you are learning it. 
like your brain is building this mylar failure yeah so when you're when you're not grasping something but you're striving to grasp it Mm -hmm. when you get away from it that's when your brain builds mylar Mm. not mylar mylar is what we make drum heads out of myelin (laughs) which myelin is like the substance that that wraps itself around your neurons after you've stretched to try to learn something and so the the myelin is the more you do something the more the violin wraps itself around these neurons and then it eventually becomes like a a super reinforced broadband cable or wire between your brain to your muscle functions Mm -hmm. and and it's the same in tennis and in chess and in baseball and in football and swimming it's like anything that you're trying to learn music you know, violin or drums, when you are practicing and working on this stuff, your brain develops this this myelin, and the more you do it, then the stronger your bandwidth mm-hmm. becomes for that task that you're working on. So, and, and I'm I'm gonna guess that if the, when you don't do it, does it also weaken after time? It doesn't. It certainly does not help. Yeah. And it does, over time, as we get into our 40s, yes, it does start start to, the myelin starts to disappear. Like if you don't keep reinforcing that. Yeah, and so there's a time, you know, there's an age where you can develop myelin, myelin easier. And as we get older, you can work just as much, but you're just maintaining mm. wow. that. Wow. And okay. you're not really building new myelin. But anyway, these are things that I've learned by, yeah. you know, through teaching, through teaching process. And, um, in, you know, I was at this drum camp in Greece, and I had the idea to do a, to do a, a panel discussion, like a roundtable discussion, where we had all of the instructor, instructors there. And the instructors were me and Keith Carlock and, and George Coleus, killing you know, killing drummer, but his main focus is, is, you know, death metal. And okay. He's like the reigning, you know, greatest of all time on death metal. <laughs> Clearing out my yeah. sinuses. Um, but he's an incredible cat. And so I wanted to ask these guys, I was like, man, I'm noticing some stuff in my practice and learning processes and I wanted to bounce this off you guys, but I've been feeling like if I'm practicing one thing, I start to reach a point of diminishing returns hmm. after 25, 30 minutes to where I start to, you know, I was working on all this John Bonham foot stuff, like the three notes in a row and the and the um, two notes, you know, the, the triplets and all that, this, the footwork in, in good times, bad times. Mm-hmm. And I had written out all these exercises and I was working on it and I would work on like one exercise and I would, Start at like, you know, 70 BPM, get it up to 80, get it up to 90. Oh, that's great. Let's take it to 91. Cool. 92. Yeah, it's getting a little loose. Mm. But I've been working on it for an hour. Right. So then it's like, all right, well, let me take it back down to 90. Oh, it's still loose. Well, let me take it back down to 80. Wait a minute. It's sucking now yeah. more than when I, I just had it at 80 clean. Yeah. Bring it down to 70. It's still sucking. Let me bring it down to 60. 
well, now I can play it, but that's slower than when I started. Yeah, so I started right. realizing maybe I was wasting my time. Uh. And started asking these guys about that, and um, and they, you know, the the universal, uh, you know, consensus was, and all having arrived upon it through different directions, but the consensus was that yes, this is you know interesting, but I sense that too, and um. And you know, one guy pointed out that that there was a study in this called the Pomodoro effect, and they used these the tomato red timers. Yeah, the little red tomato red tomato timers, where after twenty five minutes, your brain starts to reach diminishing returns mm -hmm. when you're trying to learn something. Yeah. So maybe practice something else, or you know, get up and Take a go get a snack, yeah. or you know, for me, I get up and maybe I write. Mm -hmm. You know, so. I started applying that a little bit more and so trying to because if you practice something for 25 minutes then your brain is synthesizing that building the myelin which I learned through this book the talent code and then it's processing that and you're you are doing you're you're progressing away from the drums but if you continue for an hour after 25 minutes you're going for an hour and a half you're, you're wasting an hour. Yeah, right. We'd be better off practicing three other things yeah. or you know two other things in that hour. Um, so these are all things that I've learned recently, you know, through teaching, mm -hmm. and it's and it's been it's been really beneficial and really fun. I mean, I just really love the learning process. So to learn how to to refine it and and maximize our time because as we were saying you know you don't have as much time as you would like yeah. to shed and learn so you have to figure out how to maximize that time and economize that time sure um and on that note i know we have to wrap up soon but uh just we'll move one more uh sure. just curious um and the other side of of having all these projects i'm i'm sure is is also the sacrifice and the, and the ability to like say no to other things. So I'm wondering if there's, um, it's maybe a dual, dual part question, but like things that you've, you've noticeably sacrificed in your life to, to be able to do and say yes and do all the things you do at, at such a high level. Um, and also generally how you um, decide whether an opportunity is worth pursuing. Yeah, those are good questions. And you know, as far as sacrificing, I mean, you know, I'm away from home, away from my family, but I love what I do, yeah. too. So, yeah. you know, when I'm out on the road, I have more time to practice, and and I love that. And then I do miss my, you know, my wife and my daughter and my family, and so it's a trade-off. Yeah. Um, and so that, you know, I'll, I don't feel like that's too, too much of a sacrifice because I love doing it right. so much, and I get to do it. You know, um, so that's that's it's kind of more of a trade-off. You know, yeah. not really a sacrifice. And then when I'm home, you know, I can be home and and be with my daughter and have movie night. You know, every Monday night. And yeah. you know, on Tuesday nights I go play Snug Harbor. And Wednesday nights we have we usually have movie night again. Mm -hmm. You know, so I really enjoy that and love that. And so as far as like when to 
you know, accept an opportunity or basically for me, my attitude was say yes to everything. And then <clears throat> to say yes to everything. And then you start to get to a point where you realize that, you know, maybe this isn't going to be the best situation for for where I'm at now in my career, yeah. you know, and that's the toughest, I think, choice to make and the toughest thing to learn how to do yeah. is when to say no and what to say no to. Yeah. And that's really a challenge. Do you have criteria for different offerings or opportunities? You know? you know, I mean, it's something, it's, it just depends. It's really case by case. Yeah. It's something is really musical that I really want to do, you know, and I think it's worth doing, then I'll, I'll really jump on top of it. If something is, you know, really musical that I want to do, but maybe it's going to pull me away from time with my family while I'm in town, and it's going to, you know, maybe make it so that I can't go, you know, on a weekend trip to the beach with my wife, you know, then maybe I won't stay in town for that yeah. gig, you yeah. know, yeah. maybe I'll take the, you know, go take the time and go to the beach with my wife. And that's, you know, more beneficial to my peace of mind and, and relationship, you know, instead of staying in New Orleans for one gig, you know, so that's kind of a, you know, a, a blatant Example, but that happens, yeah, you know. Yeah. So now, when I'm, if I've got an empty weekend, I try to keep it empty. Right. You know, if sure. if I don't have to go on the road. Yeah. You know, unless it's something really that I really really sure. want to do. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So it just it like I said, it's really a case by case basis. You know, and then two, you kind of have to start going with your with your your intuition. You know, mm -hmm. and your gut. And be like, should I take this or should I not? And sometimes it's it's a hard decision to make. You yeah. Know? Especially when you come up like, you know, man, I want to play every game I can. Right. I want to get better. I want to, you know, you feel honored that people want you to play with them, mm -hmm. and and it is an honor. But then you also have to find that balance of also having a personal life and a family life because you know you could burn out. Yeah. You know, yeah. you don't want that to happen either. Totally. Well, um, Stan, thanks so much for your it's time. Deep, I, I feel deep. like I, I, we're just scratching the surface. There's there's a lot more, um, you know, I'd love to talk to you about being able to do it again some other time. But, um, yeah, thanks so much. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah, man. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, folks, that concludes our episode. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. And yes, I'm still very tired. I'm just sitting here at my piano and just just kind of letting the night carry on. So I hope you have a great week. And um, Stanton, if you're out there, thank you so much again. It was a real pleasure. See you at High Sierra. Lots of fun stuff coming up in my world. 
you can keep up with me on, uh, well, magicintheother.net and ezralip.com and the Instagrams and uh, the Facebooks and, uh, you know, all that stuff. Drop me a line anytime. But uh, thanks for tuning in. And uh, we'll see you next time real soon. And uh, to all out there, have a great night or a great day wherever you are. This is Ezra Lip signing off. Leave a review on iTunes, that'd be great too.